0: Okay, we are working through a short series on, uh, on the work of the Holy Spirit, which um, will be about eight weeks, uh, and we're doing that because as a church, we want to know more of God, more of what it is to, to experience Him and to know His power at work in our lives. So we're going to spend eight weeks looking at some different aspects of who the Holy Spirit is And what the Holy Spirit does. And what I'm going to try and do as we go through this is to recommend a few books. Just some simple books that can help you if you want to go a bit further. And you've got a few more questions about some of the things I'm talking about. Actually, I forgot last week. The book I was going to recommend last week is called The Good God by Michael Reeves. Which is a brilliant little book about the Trinity. It's only about 100 pages long. Uh, and it's wonderfully easy to read, but packed with some really wonderful truths. And there's a brilliant chapter in here about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I've read it three or four times, and it's full of notes and underlinings. Um, and then I realized that this actually belongs to my wife, because it's got her name in the front. So sorry, Joe. I've scribbled all over your book. And the second book I wanted to recommend is by uh, Simon Ponsonby, who has a great name. Uh, and this book is called More... Uh, which I'm only a third of the way through, so maybe when I'm finished, I'll give you a fuller recommendation. But of what I've read so far, it's an excellent book. Simon is a, uh, he describes himself as a charismatic evangelical Anglican, which is a bit of a weird combination, how do all those things fit together. And the question he's trying to answer in this book is on the cover here. It says, how can you have more of the Spirit when you already have everything in Christ? is probably a question some of you are wrestling with, even as we talk through this series. How can I have more of God when I already have everything that I need from God in Christ? And this book answers that question really wonderfully. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, which I recommend highly. So let's get into the... We're going to look at two passages today which very much overlap. Uh, The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me, so let me just... Read these and then we will pray. So first of all, from Romans chapter 8, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then we'll flip to Galatians 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God that we have, for those of us who are believers in Jesus here this morning, that we have everything we need in Christ, that we've inherited all the riches of heaven. We have it all now because of your work, that you've adopted us into your families. As we were seeing earlier, you've taken us, those that were orphans, and you've called us to be your children, co-heirs with Christ. God, and we just want to breathe in those words deeply, we want to let that radically affect and change our lives, and we ask Holy Spirit that this morning, as we look at these words together, that you would speak to us, that you would do good to us, that you would warm our hearts again with a deeper knowledge of you and who you are, that you draw us ever closer into an intimate relationship, or walk with you, we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a wonderful little passage at the start of the book of Matthew where Jesus is baptized, which is right at the very start of his ministry. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and then coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, is before he's done anything, before any miracles have taken place, before the cross, before anything else that we know about what Jesus has done for us and who he is right at the very start. He's baptized, and the Spirit of God comes to rest on him, and the Father speaks over him. So you get this beautiful illustration of the Trinity, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all coming in one moment, and the Father speaking over his Son. This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. God's pleased with him, although he's done nothing (laughs) in terms of his ministry. Which if you're a parent here in the room, you'll probably know that same feeling that you've... A baby is born into the world and for the first, well, quite a while, they just make smells and produce things that are gross and make noises that are horrible. And yet you're filled with this overwhelming love for them that you don't know where that comes from. You think, I don't know why I feel like this. When this this little thing has done nothing good for me, like they've not they've not delivered the newspaper for me, they've not gone and shined my shoes. There's there's no practical thing they've done that I could put in a list of. These are the reasons why I love them and I'm pleased with them. And yet somehow you are, and that's exactly what it what the same way that's how the father is speaking over his son. It's also the same way that God the Father speaks over us. That he looks at us, and not only is, is, is there, we don't have this big, long list of credits, achievements, but even despite of all the things that we've done to hurt God, to offend God, he looks at us and says that he's well pleased with us, that he loves us. And this is something that, that happens to us when, when we become believers in him, when we follow him. It's, and that's what we're talking about today. What's well, called the, the uh, it says in that Romans 6 passage, the spirit of adoption. Could we move on to the next slide? There we go. This is what happens when we're, this is what happens when anybody's adopted, into like in, in a human family, if you were to adopt a child, they're taken from one family, and they're put into another family. And then all of a sudden, that's not just a, a, a thing that can then suddenly be taken away. It's a, it's a legal thing. There's something binding. There's, there's something that kind of holds that. There's a transition that's taken place that is secure. And all of a sudden, you're, you're, any obligations you had to your old family are gone now. Any things that you had to do disappear now because you're part of a new family. And all of a sudden you receive a new inheritance. You get new privileges, new title because you're part of a new family. If I was to adopt Ludo, who was playing the drum this morning, if Joe and I to say, I think, I think Ludo should come and be one of our children. And we were to invite him into our family and he was to become a Simmons, which would be great, Ludo. You'd be very honored, I'm sure. But then he would have this, he could have the leaf blower in my shed, Ludo could have it. You get this sudden inheritance that comes. But this is the same way that we as God's children have been adopted into his family. We've been adopted into his family. It says in Ephesians 2 that we were once sons of disobedience, that we were children of wrath. But now we've been brought into this new family. Into God's family, we're now the children of God. This a transition has taken place that wasn't done by us, but was completed by his power, by his authority. It says in the start of the book of John, that he gave the right to become the children of God. He's given that to us, the right now to become the children of God. It's not something that we've somehow earned for ourselves. He's given it to us. The rights, this legal status over you now, that you as a believer, you're called into his family. And any obligations you had are now gone. You can't serve two masters. You can't have two fathers. God is your father now. You're, you have a liberty, a freedom in him. You've been set free from your old way of life and called into a new way of life. And you have this wonderful inheritance now. Now these wonderful promises that are true of you now. So in the same way that God can say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased when he looks upon Jesus, his son. He looks upon us as his sons and daughters. He says, oh, my beloved, I'm well pleased with you. I'm sure all of us could think this morning, could very quickly come up of a list of reasons why that shouldn't be true things that we've done that should negate this, that should kind of ruin this, but yet it is still wonderfully, powerfully true that we're his children now. And I guess for, for, for most of us, at least at some point, maybe it's true of you this morning, you think, I, I know this is, like I know I've, you know, I've read the Bible, I know these verses, I know this is sort of technically true, but we don't always either feel like it's true. Sometimes you don't feel like God is your father. Or often we find that we're just not living in, in the, the good of the inheritance that we have in, in him. That somehow we struggle to know this. That somehow there's like, um, it's like we, we've, we've won the lottery but we've not cashed in the ticket yet. You can live like that as a believer—that you've won this great prize—but somehow, for some reason, something is held back within you. It's like you see the story of the Israelites who are saved; they're rescued out of Egypt, they're led through the Red Sea, they have their redemption moment, moment, and then when they get to the promised land, they can't go in. That even on that journey through the wilderness. Numerous times they come to Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back into slavery. They want to turn their backs on this beautiful life that they're supposed to have in God now. And they want to run back to their old life. That's a picture of how we as believers can live. That we have this inheritance in God, but we don't claim it. That we hold something back. That something in our lives doesn't quite fit and we can live without a full knowledge of our adoption as sons and daughters. I think in some ways we probably all have to wrestle with this, struggle with this. Do I really know what it means to be God's son? Do I really know that? I don't know if you've seen one of my favorite movies. is called The Shawshank Redemption. I'm going to give you a spoiler for it now, but it came out like 30 years ago, so if you've not seen it, it's your own fault. But there's um, it's a Shawshank Redemption is based around the, uh, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it take a while, but it's based around a prison, and you get, uh, in, this, in the movie, two guys at separate moments end up being released from jail, and it's fascinating what happens to them, because one of them, he's been in prison so long that he doesn't actually want to be released that when he's set free, he's he's very emotional. He's in tears because he doesn't know what to do with his life. And then when he's sent out into the real world, he doesn't know how to handle it. He ends up committing suicide because he just can't handle this new reality. And then a bit later in the film, it happens again. Someone else is set free. They're released. All the constraints on them are broken, and yet they don't know how to adapt to their new life. Sometimes that's a picture of what it can be like to be a believer, that we've been set free, and yet we don't really know how to live in the fullness, in the good of what it is to be free, that there's an unclaimed inheritance that happens. There's a quote by someone that I read in this book that I talked about earlier. He says, this is a writer called Vaughan Roberts that Simon Ponsonby was quoting from. He says, in Christ, we have everything. But manifestly, we aren't living in light of all we've received in Christ. In Christ, we have everything. But yet, even if we look around at other believers, but definitely if we look within to ourselves, am I living in the fullness, the goodness of everything that I have in Christ? Am I really living as his son, as his daughter? It's a good question to, to ask yourself. And there are some signs of this that I'm going to come up on the screen here. So on the left are kind of some signs that perhaps we're not living in the good of that, as opposed to some ways that we are. So maybe the way you see God is he's your master. He's your boss that you have to keep happy or do you see God as you're my father is your approach to Christianity or even to just your life in general I have to do this on my own you're self reliant you're independent I'm going to fight all these battles myself until sooner or later you hit one that you can't break through on or have you learned what it is to say I can't do this on my own that you're aware that you're dependent not only on other people, which we all are, but you're dependent on God. Maybe when it comes to financial issues, you think, I need to pay off my debts, which is true. Or does your heart run to a place where you say, Father, thank you for sending Jesus who paid my debts at the cross. Doesn't mean that magically, Jesus then solves our financial issues. But the worry of debt become a crippling thing that robs us of any of our joy, well actually we know that Jesus has already paid what's really important. Do you find yourself being insecure and restless, struggling with fear, worry, and doubt, or do you know a rest and a peace in God? I'm sure many of us from time to time struggle with feelings of insecurity or inadequacy or fear. In little ways, there are signs that perhaps we're not fully understanding what it is to know God as our Father. Maybe you want the praise, approval, and acceptance of others. Or do you know that you're completely accepted in God's love, fully justified by His grace? Let's move on to the next one. Maybe you, you think, I'll work hard to de- gain favor. You're constantly trying to show off your efforts to prove yourself to the world around you. Or do you say, I've been given favor. You know, I want to work hard for God, but because I've, because I've been given favor already is why I want to serve him. Do you look at other people and think, Ah, oh, they're gonna go further than me. Do you feel a sense of jealousy and frustration that other people seem to get ahead of you all the time? Or do you instead think, you know what, I want others to go further than me. I wanna be this sort of person that's always encouraging and releasing other people to fulfill what God has for them and not holding them back. Do you feel a rivalry and jealousness towards other Christians' success and position? Or do you say, I'm part of God's family So rejoice in the successes and blessings of other brothers and sisters. Do you despise being corrected? Well, that's a difficult one. Not many of us enjoy being corrected. But maybe you just do everything you possibly can to avoid it. When your boss or even someone in the church notices something in your life and says, why do you do this? Do you get angry and frustrated, even in a very silent, quiet way? Does it? kind of get bottled up within you? Or do you think, do you know what? I'm corrected because I'm loved. I have a a God who sometimes disciplines us not because he wants to hurt us because he's a good father. He wants to see us grow in fruitfulness, faithfulness to him. The next slide. Is God's love something that's distant and conditional, is it something that feels far away and you can only really ever know God when you feel you've performed? Did you come here this morning thinking, oh, I feel free in worship because I've had a good week? Maybe that's true of you. Or do you know that God's love is something that's unconditional, and close, near, intimate? It doesn't matter what kind of week you've had because Jesus paid for it all on the cross. That you can come this morning, you can come any morning, any moment, and enjoy Him. You don't have to earn your way into His presence, but Jesus has already done that so you can enjoy Him. Do you think I've messed up? I need to hide. <laughs> I'm sure some of us feel like that from time to time. I know, I know I've failed, I've made a mistake. So you hide away. And we kind of think, well, you know, it's been a few days, so maybe I'm allowed to pray now. Doesn't work like that. You can mess up and sin, and in the next moment, come to God. You can. And that can feel, that can feel wrong, but it's wonderfully right because of what Jesus has done for us. We can say instead, I am messed up, so I need my Father. So, how do we respond? Maybe you're aware of some of these, some of these conditions in your life that you're this sort of self-reliant person, you're a fearful person, always seeking the approval of others. Maybe you don't know God's love as something close and intimate, but something is distant. And you could you could think, well, hold on, what are we saying here? Are we saying that this spirit of adoption, which is who the Holy Spirit is, have we somehow stopped that? that, that, that surely that's there's some broken theology there if we've somehow resisted God. But surely we've the spirit of adoption we've received upon conversion in its fullest measure, that we have everything we need in him now. Because you know, it says in those verses, you know, we didn't receive the spirit of adoption, receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received. You, know, it's, you have it, you've received it already. So are we saying that that's not true? Hmm. Well, no, we're not saying that at all. We're saying that yes, the Holy Spirit draws, does draw us to Him. He does witness to our hearts. He has already in Christ poured out His love into our life. He's adopted us, won us into His family. But yet somehow we can still live as though it's not true. There's a verse in Thessalonians where it talks about quenching the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit. And often people will use that to refer to what we'll talk about in in a few weeks—the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit within the church. That's the gifts of teaching, or the gifts of prophecy, things like that. That we can quench the Holy Spirit by not believing in those things. Which, and it is about that. But I think also you can quench the Holy Spirit by somehow holding yourself back from God, by somehow choosing to live differently somehow choosing to live as though you're still a slave when actually you're a son instead. Because see, one of the ways the Bible describes the Holy Spirit is as fire, fire. In that passage where Jesus comes to be baptized, before that, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness, and he says to him, there's going to be one who's going to come, and he's going to baptize you with fire, The Holy Spirit is going to come on you in a powerful fire, a purifying fire is going to come on you. In Isaiah, it talks about the Holy Spirit as a spirit of burning. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, when the first believers, the very first church receives the Holy Spirit, there are tongues of fire that come upon them. And yet we can take this fire of the Holy Spirit and we we can pour water on it. We can put damp wood onto the fire and quench it. We can stop it. We can feel God tugging at our hearts and yet we can somehow hold back. And I think there are two ways in particular that we do this. One is, I guess you could call it like spiritual candy, snoopy, spiritual sweets. We take little moments, little things, and we try and use them to kind of satisfy us, like a little packet of Haribo, rather than having roast dinner. You know, we take a little thing and think it's going to somehow fill us. And we use those little things, I guess to kind of soothe our pain. There was a writer called Amy Garnett, and she said this, in times of spiritual struggle, I've turned to sweet, seemingly true sayings to soothe my spiritual cravings. In those times of feeling stretched too thin, I've reached for sweets, delectable little reminders of how capable I am, of how invincible I am, of how much I can accomplish. They're comfortable and comforting. And we do that. We, we kind of use little phrases. We kind of deliver a little pep talk to ourselves. You can do this. You've got this. You're invincible. We can try and pep ourselves up. And that will work for a bit. But it's just like the hit that you get from having a a sweet. It doesn't last. It doesn't make any real difference apart from making yourself feel a little bit better about yourself for a moment. Another way is something that, uh, a, a phrase that psychiatrists use to talk about spiritual bypassing. It's when we use uh, spiritual ideas, spiritual practices to kind of sidestep or avoid facing either psychological wounds or unresolved emotional issues in our lives. Things in our life that we know are broken, but we kind of spiritually bypass it and kind of go, try and go around it. It's often one of the criticisms of religion, of Christianity. That Christianity is just a crutch for needy people. That we use this kind of belief to somehow hold us up. And we're actually just bypassing the real issues that need to get fixed. That's not true. That's a very poor definition of what Christianity is. And yet, as Christians, you can still live like that. You You can still even use Christianity to kind of hide behind the things in your life that actually do need to be fixed. You know, you can throw yourself into an intellectual pursuit of God. You can, you can hide behind theology. You can make yourself feel better because you know a lot. And yet we can use that as a defense, as a barrier, to stop ourselves from really letting God into our life. I'm not saying that you shouldn't know things, absolutely. Learn as much as you can about God. But don't let that be a barrier, a defense. Or even we can be the sort of people that we're always seeking out the next experience. Go to the next conference, read the next book, listen to the next podcast. We need some kind of spiritual hit to kind of zap us and change us. And we're always going from one spiritual experience to the next. But never really dealing with the root issues in our life. Never really letting... God in to fix us and just we're holding on to this kind of fake slightly super spiritual version of what Christianity is but what does this spirit of adoption actually do what does the Holy Spirit really do well first of all he he reminds us of who we are That's that's what he does. That's what he's doing this morning in your hearts. He's reminding you of, in Christ, of who you really are. It says in Romans 8, verse 16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He, he bears witness, he comes and tells us, he reminds us, he persuades us of who we really are. That he'll use the word to do that. He might use a song to do that. He sometimes might just come and gently breathe quietly into your heart, just remind you of his grace, of his love, his kindness towards you. There's a beautiful quote that will come up on the screen. I've read from John Owen last week and I want to do it again. It's a different quote, but it's really beautiful. The world hates me. May such a soul as has the Spirit say, But my Father loves me. Men despise me as a hypocrite, but my Father loves me as a child. I'm poor in this world. Maybe that's you this morning. Reality is you don't have a lot of money. You're poor. But I have a rich inheritance in the love of my father. I'm straightened, which means, you know, tight, held back in all things. But there is bread enough in my father's house. He'll provide for you. This next one might speak really directly to you. It says, I mourn in secret under the power of my lusts and sin, where no eyes see me, but the Father sees me. And what's the Father like? He's full of compassion. With a sense of his kindness, which is better than life. I rejoice in tribulation, glory in affliction, triumph as a conqueror. Though I'm killed all day long, all my sorrows have a bottom that may be fathomed, my trials bounds that may be compassed. So he's saying all the sufferings we have, they, they have a limit, they have an extent, they have dimensions to them. But the breadth and depth, he's not just making this stuff up, by the way, this is all in the Bible. The breadth and depth and height of the love of the Father who can express. He's saying, all, all the sufferings and trials you have in the world, you can measure them. You can, that's how much it is. But you, you can't measure the love of God for you. You can't try and define it and put it in a box and say, well, it goes this far, and then it will go no further. <laughs> we can feel like that. I've—I've I've, Surely I've gone too far. I've stepped out of his love. You can't. If you're a believer here in Jesus, if you put your trust in Him, if you know Him as your Lord and Savior, as your Father, you can't. Because he's, this Spirit of adoption has come into our hearts now. I think it's a, a question that you should probably ask yourself: is who determines who decides whether or not you're loved? Who decides that? Do, is that a decision that you make? or a decision that you hand other, over to other people, and you're always bound by their affection and love? Or is it something you already know that's true? You know the father's love for you? Because this spirit of adoption, it reminds us of who we are. And it helps us to cry, Abba, Father. It's those two beautiful, beautiful verses we read earlier. That we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. That God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father see it's, it's those verses both have a slightly different emphasis, one it's, it says that we cry Abba Father and then the other it says the Holy Spirit is kind of crying Abba Father through us and they're both saying the same thing, that when the Holy Spirit sends when he comes into you and spirit of adoption rises up in you you can pray that prayer the wonderful thing about that phrase is it's, it's, uh, yeah, that word Abba is, is Aramaic, which means that's the language that Jesus would have spoken to, to his friends, to his family, to his own parents. And it's a very intimate, familiar, personal phrase. Not the sort of language we normally use around a holy, mighty, powerful God. But you can take this most intimate of words and you can use it to talk to God, to let your spirit cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's very personal, deep, and intimate. Because there's something very... It might, this, you might be struggling with some of this because it sounds all very subjective, It sounds like I'm saying that you can experience God. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm saying. Because sometimes we put knowledge and reason up here, we put experience down here, that knowledge is, is better, reason is better than experience. But actually the Bible is full of stories of how people experience God. And actually how all of us live, how all of us walk our way through the world is experientially. Most of the big decisions you make in your life, you don't just decide to do out of a, you don't logically make a, come to a conclusion because you've considered all the options. Sooner or later, you you just do things because you want to do things. You just do things because somebody else drives you to do it. You know, when you fall in love with somebody, there's, there's not a lot of reason and logic to that. Maybe you're different from me, but that's not how I, Fell in love with my wife. Just Something just captivates you. It's, it's a heart decision. It's an emotive decision. It's a subjective decision. It's what we're like. In this book I quoted from earlier, the writer Simon Ponsonby says, a non-experiential religion is suspect. Especially if, if we just to say you can't experience God, then there will be something wrong with that because, he says, for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. God didn't come just to rescue your mind, he came to rescue all of you, your emotions, those desires in you that you don't know what to, those desires in you that feel even out of control. He's come to rescue all of that and he wants to know you intimately, Personally, there's another quote that's going to come up on the screen by a writer called a Puritan writer who lived 100 years ago, called Thomas Goodwin. And he's trying to describe here what it means to encounter this spirit of adoption, to encounter the Holy Spirit. And he uses this illustration. He says, A man and his little child are walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand. And the child knows that he's the child of his father and he knows that his father loves him and he rejoices in that and he's happy in it. There's no uncertainty about it at all. That's my, you, know, you know as a believer in Jesus, yeah, you know, I know my father loves me. I know he delights in me and rejoices in me. Good, I, I know that. It's there. I've read the scriptures, I know that. But suddenly the father... Moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, hugs him, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again and they go on walking together. He says, That is it. <laughs> the child knew before that his father loved him and he knew it was his child. But oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of love, this Unusual manifestation of it that is the kind of thing the spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're the children of God sometimes God will just take hold of you and just whisper his love into your heart again I think that's probably what God is doing to a few of you this morning and don't resist it, don't hold back just let him come and remind you of how much he loves you. And, and don't put any limit on it. <laughs> this isn't like a, what I was talking about, a kind of a spiritual bypassing, just an experience. God wants to come right into the depths of your soul. He sent the Holy Spirit right into the very depth of your being to rebuild you from the inside out. It's not a magic, sudden moment where Everything's fixed and you're perfect. But if you allow him, the Holy Spirit, little by little, will change you. Moment by moment. He's at work within you. Finally, what the Spirit does is, he actually helps us to pray like Jesus. Because where Paul in Romans and Galatians is quoting this phrase, Abba, Father, the only other time it appears in the Bible is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. It's the only other time you see it in the Bible. where Jesus in the the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the night before he's to go to the cross and to give his life for us. And he knows what's what's coming. He knows what he's about to face. And he's just lost in anguish and pain. If you can even imagine that, the... The mental torture of knowing what's going to happen to you the next day. I don't know how you would emotionally deal with that. And how Jesus Jesus deals with it is he prays, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, this phrase that Abba Father. In one hand, it's a joyful, happy way that we can pray to Jesus. But it's also a way that you can literally cry out to him, and either in moments of anguish or moments of deep, profound joy, you can say, Abba, Father. You can pray as Jesus prayed, knowing that now as believers in him, we're caught up into this eternal love, How the Father loves the Son. How the Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit loves the Father. How this eternal, beautiful love within the Trinity, you're caught up into that. Which means you can pray like Jesus prayed. Abba, Father. And we we know now... It's a beautiful thing about this verse that you know we started with Matthew 3, the Father saying, "This is my son whom I'm well pleased It's the Father expressing his love over the son, and then we finish with Mark 14 with the son expressing his love to the Father, but also the fact that Jesus the next day did give his life for us so that we can help be called into his family, as his children. That he's won this beautiful salvation for you. He's won this inheritance for you. That you can now be a co-heir with Christ. That you can now know God as your loving, kind, intimate father. Let me pray. Actually, why don't we just, um, why don't you just stand to your feet, and um, you might want to close your eyes, you might even want to hold your hands out in front of you, you don't have to, but it's just a sign of your heart being open to God. Let's just pray before we share communion together. Oh God, we, we thank you, just that this is wonderfully true, that we were lost each and every one of us, and yet you've now adopted us into you <sighs> to know all the riches, all this beautiful inheritance we have, that we were prodigal sons that had run far from you, and yet you call us home and lay on this rich banquet, this feast for us to enjoy, that we can come and taste and see, and know that you're good, know that you're gracious, know that you love us. We know there are so many ways we're not living in the good of this inheritance, so many ways that we fear other people, that we rely on our own strength. So many different ways that we we turn our backs on you and yet you keep loving us. We reject you and yet you keep calling us back to you it's remarkable and we just want to receive this wonderful, kind love of the Father I just, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit just to come and make that alive again in your heart to take that truth which you know and just breathe on it again that you know God is your Father that he's well pleased with you not because of anything you've done but because of everything that Jesus has done for you, that you can know this perfect liberty and joy in knowing him now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God.